This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest, and you are going to wonk out on everything we discuss. If you're at all interested in, where do I begin? Mortgages, the housing market, real estate, demographics, economics, um, securitization, uh, I, I go deep into the weeds with my guest. His name is Len Kiefer. He is the deputy chief economist at Freddie Mac. For those of you who are longtime readers of mine, you know I have been somewhat fascinated by the housing market and how we put together the entire mortgage industry and, and how that drives the economy and vice versa, how the economy drives housing. Uh, sometimes the tail does wag the dog, and that was a key aspect of uh, what took place during the uh, financial crisis. Our entire conversation today is really post-crisis. What's taken place, how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in particular have changed and what it means to uh, not only the growth of the housing sector, but the entire economy. So with no further ado, my conversation with Len Kiefer, Deputy Chief Economist at Freddie Mac. My special guest today is Len Kiefer. He is the Deputy Chief Economist at Freddie Mac, one of the two giant government-sponsored entities that securitizes most of the mortgages here in the United States. He comes to us uh, with a BA in economics from the University of Kentucky and a PhD from Ohio State. Len Kiefer, welcome to Bloomberg. Hey, happy to be here. So... I've been following you on Twitter for a while. We'll get to that in a little bit. I, I just have to begin with your bio, which says, quote, I help people understand the economy, housing, and mortgage markets. That's a noble goal, but how can any single economist accomplish that? Yeah, Barry, that, that's really tough to do. That's more of a mission statement, you know, okay. what I try to, how I try to you know, organize myself, how, you know, my public life, what I'm trying to do. Uh, and I think we have some success doing that. There's really sort of two areas where I focus on to try to help people understand what's going on. Uh, part of my role at Freddie Mac is to help, you know, be a company spokesperson to go out and talk to, you know, our various business partners. We have events where, you know, we bring together real estate agents, mm -hmm. uh, loan officers, um, others. And, you know, th those folks are often very active in the marketplace, but they want to hear, you know, from an economist uh, to get a sense of sort of a bigger, broader perspective on what's going on, what's happening in the global macro economy. And so helping those folks understand, give them our perspective from what we do in our research and what we find, I think, is part of the way we help do that. And then a second uh, hat I wear uh, is to help folks inside the company, so at Freddie Mac, folks that are really thinking about sort of the mortgage market, the housing market in the United States very carefully, give them sort of an economics perspective uh, to how to make sense of the trends, what's happening, and how the market uh, may be headed in the future. I left out of your bio that you were a professor at George Mason. How did you transition from academia to Freddie Mac? Yeah, so it was uh, it was an interesting transition. You know, I, I went to Ohio State, uh, and after I graduated, I actually went to West Texas, Texas Tech University, mm -hmm. uh, and was there as a, a tenure track professor uh, in their program. Uh, my wife is also an economist. We met at at Ohio State, and she took a job uh, in D.C. And I decided that I would uh, follow her. Uh, There's better job opportunities in the D.C. metro than West Texas mm -hmm. uh, for economists, and so I followed her. Uh, to the D.C. area, and then uh, eventually ended up uh, at Freddie Mac. So I mentioned earlier your Twitter feed. Uh, you just fill it with these most delightful charts that a lot of other people don't use. It's not just this is the number of new homes that have been sold. They're very different, insightful reveals as to what's going on beneath the surface um, uh, of the housing market. A lot of big companies, and I include Freddie Mac as really more of a private company, they're not so keen on senior people being out on social media. How have you worked this out with, with Freddie Mac? Are they um, encouraging? Are they nervous? How, how do you interact with them 
uh, on the social side. Yeah, actually, it was the Freddie Mac communications folks who actually encouraged me to actually get started on Twitter in particular, because uh, we view it as, you know, as a great way to get, you know, short insights out. We do a lot of analysis, data analysis. A lot of that tends to get siloed within right. the organization. Uh, and since we're already producing a lot of that information, a lot of that is based on public data. Uh, I think those observations, uh, which are already things we did in sort of other research avenues, I think were Twitter was a great platform to be able to share that insights and information. And so they've been supportive of, you know, me uh, engaging in that and trying to get, you know, conversation going, share our insights, share our perspective, uh, share some of the things that we're seeing in the housing market. Because I think within Freddie Mac, we have an interesting perspective. We have a lot of data, a lot of really smart people, a lot of insights. And so distilling some of that down into the public conversation around the housing and mortgage market and the economy is I think well within sort of my role in the company, and they've so they've been supportive of that. And and your Twitter handle is at Len Kiefer, K I E F E R. I actually the other day retweeted a graphic you showed, and the charts you use—they're just a fascinating combination of annual color-coded mortgage rates, and then shown on a continual timeline. How do you how do you source these things? Are you doing this all in house? Where do you create these? Yeah, so I actually create a lot of them myself. You know, I'm a big fan of data visualization. You know, I asked earlier about uh, the transition from an academic world to an industry world and one of the key fundamental differences between an academic approach to economics and a more industry-focused approach is, you know, the really importance of being salient, being clear, and having a crisp communication. And so, and data visualization, which I think is really undergoing a renaissance, you know, with all the computing technology, all the great ideas that people have, has really, I think, shifted sort of where, you know, the dialogue can be in terms of information design, how you present information. And so thinking about uh, new, you know, interesting ways to present the same data, because, you know, I've been working on our mortgage rate survey for uh, close on five years now, or over five years. You know, we have a weekly mortgage rate, so every week we have a mortgage rate. So trying to come up with what's a new perspective, what's interesting to see about that, what's a different way, how can I turn this data and try to look at it in a slightly different way to get a new insight um, is challenging. And so I think data visualization and, and building graphs and interesting charts is a way to do it. And the great news is, is that there's a whole ton of people out there who are active. You know, they share things either through blogs or social media on Twitter that give me a lot of ideas. And in the world we're in today, a lot of the code that they use to create those charts are open source. Mm -hmm. So it's relatively easy to pick that up and extend it, to tweak it, to apply it, you know, take something from genomics or biology and apply it to economics and finance. I think that's a, that's a really rich environment. Uh, and so one of the positive aspects of the social media is the ability to sort of quickly share that information and to get it to a broader audience than what you might get if you were to siloed within, you know, mortgage finance. Well, well, you do a great job. I'm absolutely um, entranced by all of your um, graphics and always tell people follow at Len Kiefer. Let's talk a little bit about the entire process of mortgage securitization, which really dates back to the post-Great Depression era, back when mortgages were three years interest only. And if you couldn't roll them over, well, you were in deep trouble. You would end up losing the house. That was a big part of what happened uh, during the and following the Great Depression and why we have mortgage giants like Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae Tell us about the process of securitizing a mortgage. How does that start, and, and what is the thought process like when your firm is doing that? Yeah, so I think what's really important is sort of the interface between Freddie Mac and the primary market, or the originators, the, the institutions that are actually making the loans, because we at Freddie or Fannie Mae don't actually originate loans. We right. are active in the secondary market, but we're heavily involved you know, with the originators in terms of sort of the types of products that are acceptable that we will you know, securitize uh, and will fund. And so that sort of interaction sort of is very much sort of at the sort of very beginning stages, even at sort of underwriting and sort of the processing. There's a large part of Freddie Mac who deals with, you know, loan operations. How do, how do we take on loans? How do we deal, how do we help the originators, you know, underwrite their loans through automated underwriting systems often? Uh, and then those loans get originated. And then we, of course, then put them into securitizations, which we've been doing for quite, quite some time. And what's been relatively new that folks, you know, that aren't active in the sort of this space might not recognize, but it was actually, I think, fundamentally important for how the mortgage finance system has changed over the last uh, decade is that we have really begun to be active in a credit transfer market where 
Credit Mac actually takes the credit risk associated with the mortgages, which mm -hmm. traditionally we would hold, uh, and distributing it through investors, either through you know, senior sub securitizations or through reinsurance market. And so that sort of those transactions, both on the single and multifamily side, have really helped to sort of you know disperse the credit risk and sort of get it to a broader market, which can ultimately help to bring you know costs down for taxpayers uh, and also for you know borrowers. So let's drill down on that a little bit. And I know some people are listening and saying, "Gee, that sounds awfully complicated," but it really isn't quite as complicated as the as the jargon makes it sound. Banks originate mortgages, and these days it's primarily banks. Uh, they'll they'll write a mortgage, which means they're giving somebody uh, half a million dollars or so to buy a house. Now they have uh, a piece of paper that says we have a lien against this house, but the buyer owes us five hundred thousand dollars. Now we're out of money. So if we want to make another loan, we have to sell that mortgage to somebody else, get the five hundred thousand, and now make yet a second loan and do that over and over again. So the entities buying these mortgages then put them into a securitized product, which they send sell to Wall Street and others who are willing to take broadly diversified risk, be it geographically and other factors, in order to capture some sort of a uh, yield. Is that am I oversimplifying that, or is that pretty pretty decent? <laughs> yeah, that's a great job, Barry. No, that's that's pretty. That's pretty so cool. now let's talk about the next step, which I don't know how how much this existed pre-financial crisis. And, and we should clarify, you've only been at Freddie Mac since after the crisis. You weren't there during that kind of crazy few years. That's right. I joined the company in October of 2009, which was about a year after the conservatorship, which was in 2008, about a decade ago. Mm -hmm. So this uh, credit transfer risk, how does that operate? Who are the buyers of this? And what are they actually... Um, on the hook for when they're taking this risk. Yeah, so this is very new. I mean, there were attempts, I think, to start this market going, you know, in the past, or even in the early 2000s, but it really got started, I think, on the multifamily side in 2009, which would, uh, you know, risk sharing essentially between Freddie Mac and, and investors. Uh, and then in the single family side around 2012 or 2013. And what this is, is uh, traditionally under that model that you described, where uh, Freddie Mac would buy the loans and then securitize them, the investors of those securities were really just buying interest rate risk. Right. The credit risk was guaranteed. So the by, by, by the government's GSCs, by, the government-sponsored entities. Yeah, by Freddie or, or Fannie. Uh, and so we would guarantee that uh, the credit risk, so in the event of a default, if the you know borrower defaulted on their home, uh, the investors would get paid back the principal, and so then the credit losses would be taken by the entities. Uh, since then, we've begun to realize that maybe holding all that credit risk in one single gigantic or uh, two single gigantic organizations may not be the most efficient uh, way to structure it. And so the idea was, well, how can we divert, sell that to a diversified marketplace? Just like with interest rate risk on the, the mortgage bonds, could we sell the credit risk to investors? Could they understand sort of, okay, what are the likelihood of default? Uh, how, how would I understand that risk? And once they've got a handle on that risk, they may be willing to then uh, purchase these credit risk transfer securities or reinsurance contracts, where in the event of a default, it's not only Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae that has to help make up the loss, it's also these other investors. So what do they get if they're paying for that? They're paying for the right to actually be on the hook if there's a credit default? What's the upside to them? Well, they get some yield in that, right? Mm -hmm. So they have to pay for that. So there's, you know, auctions, those bonds are, are uh, auctioned off. And so there's the market sort of, in some sense, determines what the price of that credit risk is, which mm -hmm. is, is very new. Uh, and so that's where sort of I think Freddie Mac uh, was very much a leader in trying to get this market started because initially folks really didn't have a sense. Well, what, how, do, how does credit risk look? Uh, what, what are the losses maybe going to look like? And so back, you know, uh, early 2010s, we started releasing a lot of information to investors, information mm -hmm. on you know mortgage historical performance, data that was historically kept uh, within the uh, uh, ent enterprise, but actually we put it out publicly. It's actually available on the website. You go to freddiemac.com right now. You can go get a loan level file that gives you information on not only the loans that were originated, but also their subsequent performance and mm -hmm. even information on their losses. And that's very important for the marketplace so that they can then use that data, build models, analyze it. So when they look at new originations, can use that historical data to get a sense for what credit losses could look like in the future when they're deciding you know, what the, to bid for these securities or insurance contracts. So in the old days, a, a buyer of a securitized product out of the either Freddie Mac or, or Fannie Mae was taking interest rate risk 
And theoretically, they were taking credit risk, but the assumption was the full faith and credit of the United States stood behind it. So really, they weren't taking a whole lot of credit risk. Is, is, am I oversimplifying well, that? Well, I, I, I think a little bit they wouldn't. Even in the case of the traditional securitization, it's more counterparty. It's not credit risk on the borrower. Or it would mm -hmm. be counterparty risk could Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae pay uh, their obligations. So that was really the risk. So and the assumption was? That they had the gu implicit guarantee right. was the assumption. Huh. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about how Freddie Mac and the other government-sponsored enterprises have changed post-crisis. What, what do you see the biggest uh, changes at Freddie Mac have been? Yeah, so I think, you know, starting back, you know, at the tenure of our um, current CEO, Don Layton, when he had come in around 2011 or so, I think he really brought uh, a real focus on uh, culture of the institution of Freddie Mac and how you know we could have a commercial-minded focus. He had come from uh, Chase and uh, J.P. Morgan and eBay, and so he brought a real commercial-mindedness to the enterprise and a real focus on being an efficient organization, have an organization that was focused on customer, uh, with an eye to potentially in some future state perhaps being uh, more competitive than maybe we had been in in the past. And so that really took some time to really get that going, but I've really seen that. Uh, go through the organization and and really you know, I think about that in my work how I try to bring you know the economics to you know either help our business partners internally or help folks you know externally uh, and really have that kind of a I think a real customer focus which was I think a, a real uh, focus and direction there uh, that we certainly had but it wasn't at the top and that I think really brought itself down and really got folks really focusing on how can we be efficient how can we you know help make this Freddie Mac better while we are continuing to evolve. As I mentioned, we talked about the credit risk transfer and other innovative things that are going on as the market sort of continues to change. You referenced um, the conservatorship, which took place before you joined. Um, since that took place, Freddie Mac has returned $112 billion back to taxpayers, 60% more than they received. Uh, during the crisis, uh, is Freddie Mac a giant cash cow? That sounds like that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. I mean, part of the thing that was interesting coming to Freddie Mac from an academic is the scale. Mm -hmm. Freddie Mac has, you know, I think around over just over two trillion dollars in our guarantee wow. portfolio. That's you know uh, mortgages that are in our securities. Um, a couple of trillion more, and you'll be up to BlackRock and Vanguard levels. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of zeros. Uh, yes. And it's one in five, roughly one in five home loans in the country. I mean, it's just a huge scale. Um, but a lot of sort of the, uh, you know. One in five home loans in the country. That's an amazing number. Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, we have thousands of seller services who deliver loans to us. I mean, it's just a huge operation on a very, very large scale, which is some of the power of sort of the securitization and the ability to sort of tap global capital markets, which ultimately leads you know, to benefits for borrowers, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage right. and uh, lower rates, which are going to, I think, be a, a continued focus given sort of the markets has seen interest rates drift higher. Uh, over the last year. So I mentioned previously, you put up this lovely chart on Twitter about uh, mortgage rates are now back to levels not seen since 2011. But really, by any traditional measure of mortgage rates, the cost of borrowing to buy a house is still relatively inexpensive, isn't it? It is from a historical perspective. We, I mentioned we work on what we call the primary mortgage market survey. It's our weekly mortgage rate survey. It, it tracks, you know, what's the 30-year fixed rate mortgage on average across the country. We've been doing it since 71. Approximately what is a mortgage rate for the typical 30-year fix these days? Uh, it's around 475, 4.75%. 4 Still under 5%. Now, I recall back in the 2000s when mortgage rates broke 5% to the downside, People were like, oh, my goodness, this is incredibly inexpensive. Have we just gotten spoiled? Uh, we've benefited, I think, from low mortgage interest rates. But one of the challenges is, is, you know, you think about where the marketplace is today. And a lot of buyers are showing up for first-time buyers. Mm -hmm. They were in high school, perhaps, or college when that was they going on. They don't remember. On. They don't remember. For them, you know, a mortgage even at 4% is relatively high. And 5 <laughs> you know, we, we I mentioned we work on the survey. You know, we have some staff that help us, junior staff that are relatively young. Uh, you know, I th I'm afraid we're going to get a 5% mortgage rate. We, we may have... Uh, and they're going to ask me, is this some data error? Is this even possible? Uh, and so, yes, from a historic perspective, long run rates are very low. But in the relative to recent years, a little bit higher. 
So that raises the question, how high can rates tick up before it begins to crimp the entire housing market, which is one of the biggest sectors in the economy? You know, we have been seeing home sales, for example, increase year after year. Uh, We had the best year in a decade in 2017. And when we started the year, we were forecasting to see a modest increase in overall home sales uh, in 2018. Rates rose, uh, and that has, I think, cooled activity a little bit. You know, definitely there's some momentum stalled a little bit in the summer of 2018. I think a lot of that had to do with the impact of rates because the broader economy is doing very well. The employment market is very good. A lot Mm -hmm. of job growth. We're seeing incomes pick up. Confidence is high. The real two things are impeding sort of the overall housing market. It's high home prices Mm -hmm. and then high interest rates, which both make it difficult for potential buyers. What is the key driver of home prices? Is it demographics, the overall economy, interest rates, some combination? What makes prices of homes go up and down? Well, I'm an economist, so I got to say everything. But, <laughs> but in the current uh, environment, I mean, what, what I believe, and many other housing economists also believe, is that the real challenge in the current marketplace is a big imbalance between housing demand and housing supply. There's just not enough housing, not just homes, it's also apartments, just overall housing in the United States after a decade of slow building is still way below what we need. In fact, some research my team is working on is to calculate just how far we are uh, in aggregate short of what we need. So there's a there's a big imbalance in the housing market between supply and demand. The United States is just building too few housing units relative to what our growing population needs. It's not just single family homes, also apartments. And you see that in the rental market as well. So home prices and rents rising above income has been doing that for several years. And that is creating a lot of pressure in housing markets uh, that's driving, I think, the primary factor that's driving higher home prices. So let's delve into that issue of why we have now an undersupply of of both homes and multifamily units. Some of it, uh, very regional, depends on a little bit of NIMBY. You look at San Francisco and, and parts of New York, people are reluctant to allow new projects to go up. They don't want their views blocked. They don't want more concentration, more traffic. Some of it is uh, not a whole lot of economic mobility is one of the issues that that we've looked at. But really, the key question is, we had so much overbuilding going on in 04, 05, 06. Have we burnt off that excess supply? Are we now really running a full deficit relative to household formation? That's that's what I believe. Now, there's a little bit to unpack there, because mm-hmm. if you took all the housing units in the country and we matched up all the people, there might be a little bit of balance. And what the challenge is, is that a lot of the housing units that are currently available are in places where there's not a lot of jobs. Right. And so the fact that you have sort of a lot of you know housing in parts of the Midwest and Northeast that are seeing population decline mm-hmm. doesn't really help out when you have hot housing markets, places like California or in Texas. In some places, building is ramping up, but it's still struggling to match. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing that real pressure there pushing up uh, home prices. Is there anything we can do to facilitate the construction of more residential real estate? I mean, clearly there's going to be a need as our population continues to grow. There are things, um, and there's things, in fact, Freddie Mac has been looking at in particular, part of a a small component, but an important component is around manufactured housing, which in a lot of places, a lot of rural areas, uh, that can be a very uh, affordable product. And so finding ways to finance that uh, is, I think, an important contribution. Although in aggregate, that's going to be marginal, but you got to mm-hmm. start adding up marginal things because I think uh, there's no national policy, I think, that can fix it on the supply side. A lot of it has to do with local zoning mm-hmm. or a lack of labor. Uh, and so that, I think, we're seeing overall economy is shortages of labor across the board. Really? In construction? Because I know, again, going back to the early 2000s, a lot of the construction workers might not have been here legally and those folks all all left the country during the financial crisis and apparently have not come back. Is this still an ongoing drag on on home manufacturing? Well, absolutely the lack of a labor is a key challenge and part of the challenge is also the skilled labor that's available in the construction industry is also facing, you know, competing demands in terms of remodeling. We got mm-hmm. a lot of boomers 
Uh, we've looked at sort of the housing stock as it is relative to the needs of a lot of seniors who are looking to age in place. Uh, and they need to do remodeling to their house to make it sort of co conform to what they're going to need. And that sort of competes away limited construction workers as well, because that's a relatively low productivity uh, uh, area. Uh -huh. And so that means you need more workers to, to do uh, more a similar amount. And so that puts, again, more pressure. But across the board, uh, home builders are having a hard time finding work, the skilled labor in particular, that they need to match and ramp up production. You know, I could always tell when we're later in the economic cycle, when you go to hire contractors and other people just to put on a new roof or do landscaping at a home, and they're very difficult to find. Uh, but I noticed that much earlier this cycle, and I didn't put together, oh, it's a labor shortage. It's not just that the the economy is heating up. That, that's really a very interesting observation on, on your part. Let me ask you a bit about the bifurcated uh, housing market. We've had a bit of a bifurcated recovery. If you were in the right geography or the right career or the right um, education level, you did pretty well in this recovery. And if you weren't, you didn't. We see sort of a parallel development in housing. There are housing winning areas and housing not so winning areas. Are you seeing something similar to those anecdotal observations? Absolutely. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about home prices and what the trends are, because I think it tells you a lot about what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, not everything, but it tells you a lot. And if you look at sort of the national home prices have been rising somewhere around 6%, uh, depending on the particular index, but a lot of them are showing a similar trend of around 6% nationally. But you go to the subnational level, you go to certain metro areas, it's easily double that. It's on fire. It's on right? fire. Seattle, uh, Las Vegas, in fact, uh, very, very strong house price growth there, whereas really? you go to parts of the Midwest and Northeast, much more moderate house price growth. What conclusion should we draw about from that? Well, there, there are two things that we've sort of looked at at that. Uh, one is, for a lot of the young adults in this country, these rising housing costs are a real challenge. You know, if you're a homeowner and home prices go up a lot, well, you get a lot of equity. But if you're a, a new potential first-time buyer or renter, even higher housing costs are really just make it tougher uh, already for a generation, you know, that's had, I think, a pretty tough economic environment. Sure, they came of age right in the middle of the financial crisis, and that leaves a lasting, uh, lasting impact. It's, absolutely. In fact, one of the things we looked at was, well, what about household formation? Because there's been a lot of trend of, you know, young adults doubling up. They live with roommates or uh, non-partners, parents' right. basement as well. I mean, it's huge numbers. You know, the percentages are might seem small, but when you add up the numbers, it's millions mm -hmm. of people. Uh, in fact, we estimated that about if you look at the 25 to 34-year-old population, there's about 1.6 million fewer households wow. uh, than what you would have if we were living in an economic environment like the early 2000s. Now, I was under the impression that we've started to see that reverse, that new household formations are occurring and millennials are getting married, perhaps later than prior generations. But the worst effects of the great financial crisis in that space are unwinding. Uh, am I more or less right with that? Or I, I think so. I mean, we're seeing that. Part of it is sort of, is it a, you have a shock and is it permanent? And if you look mm -hmm. at life cycle evidence, unfortunately, some of the evidence economists have looked at it suggests that these effects are long lasting. They linger for a long, long time. They linger because you get behind in the job market. You, take a, you come in at a lower salary and that may have a permanent effect, but you are healing. Labor market is heating up. We're seeing a lot of job growth. And we are seeing, even within our own data, upward trends of first-time home buyers. Mm -hmm. So they are showing up in the marketplace, they're showing up as renters, they're showing up as home buyers, but they still got a lot of ground to make up a as a group. And so teasing out how much of that is just aging and how much of that is actual catching up is part of sort of the challenge and what economists like me can help sort of provide some analysis on. Uh, and so we're seeing that. But if you think about the future of the U.S. housing market, I'm fundamentally optimistic. And the reason why is because we have a large amount of pent-up demand and if the economy stays, you know, relatively strong, we should continue to see that demand showing up over, you know, the next few years. So let me take that and extend that to a, a different question. Uh, market bottomed in 09. We've had a really long run since then. The economy has expanded, albeit below historic trend, but for a very long time. To me, that implies that this isn't the latter stages, that we're really ramping up here. I'm hearing from you, there's a ton of headroom in the housing market. This can continue to trend in a positive direction for a good couple of more years. It's not like housing is peaking and is about to roll over. 
there's a lot of room to grow here, isn't there? I think so. There is a challenge. You know, if rates continue, mortgage interest rates continue to rise, I think that will slow the growth. But there's still, I think, enough headroom that you could have modest growth over the next couple of years in terms of home sales. I think housing construction has a lot of room for improvement to match demand. You will probably will see home price growth moderate just because from an affordability perspective and as we get some more supply online, that'll help moderate the price growth. But I still think we're going to see uh, a pretty good housing market uh, over the next couple of years if the economy sort of stays on track. What can you tell us about how mortgage origination has evolved since the financial crisis? Well, I think one of the key factors is that cost pressures in the mortgage origination space have risen a lot with increased compliance costs, but also other costs. Just the cost to originate a mortgage has increased quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing that there's quite a bit of consolidation in the mortgage space uh, and I think that may continue as some of the smallest players may find that it's more economical for them to either merge. Uh, but in general, sort of that's one of the areas where I think Freddie Mac can offer some help in the sense of trying to help provide technology and tools that can help make the mortgage origination and then selling that into the secondary market easier uh, can help to relieve some of that cost pressure. I think it's fundamentally important, things we've already been doing but are continuing to focus on that I think will ultimately help uh, provide, you know, uh, lower cost mortgages for borrowers. Can you stick around a little bit? I have a ton more questions for you. Absolutely. We have been speaking with Len Kiefer. He is the deputy chief economist at Freddie Mac. If you enjoy this conversation, well, then be sure to check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things mortgage related. You can find that at iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Len, thank you so much for doing this. I am a housing geek. I'm really fascinated by this topic. Um, I brought a book for you that uh, was the manifestation of of that geekdom uh, called Bailout Nation. Um, but one of the things that I think listeners should be aware of relative to the conservatorship of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac was when the feds rescued the two GSEs, they put a whole bunch of conditions on them. They're not allowed to lobby Congress. They're, there's just a whole run of things they couldn't do. For some reason, they couldn't remember. Congress never got around to putting the same sort of restrictive conditions on Bank America or Goldman Sachs or any of the other big entities that were lobbying every bit as aggressively uh, as the GSEs were pre-crisis. So they kind of imposed one set of rules for the GSEs and ignored the bank's roles in lobbying Congress for some really, um, uh, let's just call it generous regulatory oversight that that contributed in some way to the to the uh, financial crisis. So a lot of questions that people who know who I am and what I've written about. Right around now, they're probably thinking, how come Ritholtz isn't asking him any of these questions? It's because you're not allowed by congressional mandate to discuss that. Am, am I overstating that? Or aside from the fact you weren't there during the crisis, but there are restrictions as to what you can publicly state. Are you allowed to answer that or are you restricted on that? <laughs> I, I can answer that, Barry. I mean, one of the things I, I try to do and I think it's important uh, is to not, you know, overspecify what my expertise is. So mm-hmm. I'm focused on the housing and mortgage market, the economy, the economics of that, um, the policy stuff. That's really other groups. If they need an economist to talk about what might be the policy, you know, economic implications, I might do analysis. But uh, but a lot of that uh, is sort of not my area. And so I try to stay in my lane and focus on the economy or what the mortgage market is doing. Totally and how, fair. And how Let, can we understand that? So, so yeah. let's let's stay in your lane and, and stick to it. The one question I don't know if you can ask, but I think it it's really intriguing. Uh, for a long time, home ownership was the cornerstone of the American economy. Speaking generally uh, within your lane, what are your thoughts about this? Is is 
The housing sector still a key part of the economy. Is it going to continue to be for the foreseeable future? How do you how do you fit this into the overall um, economic growth that we're seeing? Yeah, you know, a, a couple of years ago, uh, HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development, they put together a publication, they invited some researchers to p- write on the provocative title, could the homeownership rate in the United States fall below 50%? It's around what six, is it currently? It's around 64% today. And, and that was uh, peaked almost like 69? 69, yeah. yeah. Right in the middle of uh, 06, 07, something like that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It actually peaked in 04 and then in 06 again, it sort of hit mm-hmm. around that 69 rate. Double they, top. Okay. But they were they were really focused on, oh, uh, this analysis was saying, oh, could the homeownership rate you know drop to levels that we haven't seen since you know the 1950s? And so we took that up and did some analysis to try and see and look at that and say it, it doesn't seem the case i mean it may it, it's unlikely that the united states is going to see a home ownership rate back around 69 percent given sort of demographics right. and other forces but i think there's some upward uh momentum because we've got an aging population that tends to have home ownership and the populations uh that may have traditionally had lower home ownership rates may see that tick up modestly Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's an important part of sort of the American, you know, economic life. I think home ownership is not for everyone. Never, it's not, everyone doesn't need to have that, but a lot of people aspire to that. And so making that possible, I think, in a responsible way is an important thing to do. But uh, sort of a particular tar- target or a number or something like that, I, I don't think that's that's the way to think about it. It's really to think about is the economy sort of providing the opportunity for folks who have good credit, who would, should qualify for a mortgage. Are they able to get sort of mortgage credit and financing. So you referenced changes in some of the demographics. Let's dive into that a little bit. You know, if you bought a house in the 50s or 60s, you had a huge demographic tailwind at your back. Uh, And a lot of people who are retiring over the past couple of years got to benefit from a country that had, I don't know, 150 million people and now are well over three and a quarter million people. What is the impact on housing if fertility rates continue to fall and we end up with a fairly level population? If we don't see population growth, well, you have to replace old decrepit homes, but really that's a key driver, isn't it? That's absolutely the case, although I think we have to a little bit of caution, right? Back in the 80s or 90s, some economists wrote, sort of looked at the housing market and were suggesting, oh, the housing market's going to crash in the 90s. Uh, and they were think- basing that off of historical demographic trends. Right. But what they didn't account for was the fact that people were living longer and healthier right. lives. And so one of the key things we've seen is that, you know, the boomer generation uh, has been the healthiest generation. They are living longer. They're intending to live longer. And so you're not going to necessarily see the same fall off in, you know, or supply coming online from, you know, boomers, you know, moving to, you know, out, out of home ownership or out of their apartments. Uh, that's probably not going to happen or it will happen later. Well, well, now let's assume the longevity factor is part of the demographic question. Uh, wouldn't that just change the type of home ownership? You'll see more people in uh, either active retirement communities or assisted living facilities or communities where you still own your own home, but it's geared more for a different age lifestyle. You may, although I think that's a little bit later out because the boomers as a generation, some of them are still, I think, uh, the youngest are still in their 50s. So they still have, I think, the active lifestyle is more like if you look at the amenities, for example, uh, folks, economists have surveyed sort of folks in that 55 plus generation. What are they looking for in terms of housing? Very similar to the the basket of sort of amenities that uh, millennials want, with the sole exception they're not looking so much for playgrounds. Uh, (laughs) But 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 overall, you know, they're they're looking for the same basket, and they are broadly speaking much healthier. And so they're sort of not moving assisted living, and that sort of that that end of life is in as a generation is more, you know, several decades out in terms of where the boomers are in in general. And so I think that's going to boost overall demand. In fact, some economists in our department have looked at that, mm-hmm. and it's going to have a, a very large effect on sort of taking supply that would otherwise be available for millennials out of the market. And that's why I believe housing market still needs to build more units to supply the population. So, so you're not seeing demographic headwinds like a number of people, Harry Dent is one, some other people have written, you know, the coming population crash. Um, you're not seeing that sort of thing anywhere off in the future. Not in the ne- not in the 2020s. Perhaps in the 2030s. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, you had mentioned previously multifamily uh, mortgages. 
way back when uh, the typical Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac uh, securitized mortgage was a single-family home. Tell us a little bit about when the idea of multifamily financing came about. Oh, well, I think well, there's different components, but I think one of the important innovations that, that was made was the credit risk transfer. I, we talked a little mm -hmm. bit about that, about selling to investors the credit risk. It actually started in our multifamily division. They were ahead of single family in terms of uh, huh. placing those those mortgages into securities. I believe it was around 2009 we started what we call our K deals, which were uh, those multifamily. K deals. That's the, just the name of the security uh -huh. uh, that uh, securitizes multifamily loans and, and sells that credit risk to investors. How big a aspect of the business of Freddie Mac are multifamily uh, mortgage securitization? Um, I don't have the number on the top. Is it? Of my is it? What I oh, let me rephrase yeah. that. Is it? Is it a tiny niche or is it a half decent and growing? slice of the business? It's absolutely been growing. Uh, I think I, Freddie has been the largest supplier of multifamily financing in the overall marketplace uh, in recent years. And we've financing seen Financing or securitizing other financing? Pr providing funding for the multifamily market. If mm -hmm. you look at sort of how, where does the funding for multifamily uh, apartments come from? You can look at life insurance companies, banks, really? uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Freddie, I think, was the largest single source of funding in that marketplace in, in certain recent years. Um, and so that's uh, been a large and growing business. Now, compared to our single family business, it's relatively small just because the single family business is uh, a lot larger in terms of the overall right. sort of uh, uh, mortgage finance for the United States. One, one of the things that was pretty obvious when we looked at the data post-crisis was that, well, you have a certain number of existing homes and typically... Um, when you look at existing home sales, new home sales were something like a sixth or a seventh of that. Uh, but the big change was the rise of, of multifamily homes, apartment buildings, any sort of rental as opposed to ownership. Uh, is that trend continuing or is that kind of leveled off uh, as, as the economy has gotten better? I think you're starting to see a very beginning. The data isn't all, all there yet. We sort of have to see. But I think you're seeing some leveling off for sure. There isn't so much as a movement as we saw back in the early crisis years, 2010. There was a big shift of single-family homes, for example, from ownership to rentership. Uh, some of that has remained in rentership. Uh, but you're seeing the home ownership rate tick up a little bit. Uh, we may continue to see some, some uptrend there and some shifting of those homes, but not in any big way in any data that I've seen. One of the cheapest sectors of the U.S. Uh, stock market has been the home builders. They are unloved and unwanted and therefore very inexpensive. If, if you were going to make a bet as to when home building might start to revert back to normal, so when we look at a long-term chart, we're still below the levels that prior recessions bottomed at. If you go back 40 years, it's amazing that not only did we hit the level where we usually, you know, um, touch basement during recession, we went straight through it and down below, and we still haven't gotten back up over those levels. It's it's quite astonishing. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned some of the charts that I share on Twitter. One of my favorite recent ones, because it was striking to me when I put this together, was to look at uh, the uh, housing supply. So you add up single-family homes, apartments, manufactured home shipments in the United States, which the census has tracked that since 1968. Wow. And you ask sort of for full year 2017, the U.S. added about 1.25 million units, which is up from every year since 2008. However, if you compare that number against all of the years prior to 2008, only one year, one single year, did the U.S. add fewer overall homes, apartments, and manufactured homes. And that was 1982 when mortgage interest rates had spiked, the Fed was trying to kill off inflation, uh, and folks were really struggling in that year. So 2017, which is the best year in about a decade, comparable to 1982 in terms of the overall level of building, that's that's there's some room for improvement there. I, I'm scrolling through your uh, Twitter feed looking at housing supply, and it's, uh, it's the wrong thing to search for because every other chart uh, has it. But there are really some amazing data points um, between population growth and unemployment rate and home prices, it, it's fascinating. I, I want to reiterate to listeners that they should they should uh, follow you on Twitter because you really put up a, a tremendous run um, of charts. They're really quite fascinating. So um, let me let me ask you a broad question that I didn't get to earlier. If you had to pick the single most important development in 
the housing finance system over the past decade, what would that be? I absolutely think it has to be the credit risk transfer because that's really changed the model for you know the secondary market financing. Mm-hmm. You've taken a tremendous amount of credit risk that was concentrated in Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, and now you have distributed broadly, uh, which I think has the potential to really you know reduce overall risk in the overall housing or finance system by creating you know diversification. And so that getting investors comfortable with that, getting them to actually you know take on that and buy, invest in those securities, there's been very brisk demand for those. I think has uh, really I think changed fundamentally sort of how the U.S. housing finance system operates and how it will go look going forward. And that's a cost-efficient transfer mechanism. It seems kind of complicated to maybe because it's it's a little new and I'm not familiar with credit risk transfer, but how how efficient is that? Yeah, you know, I think one of the important things is getting investors, you know, comp- confident about sort of the data, confident about the housing market. One of the things I did recently, you know, was travel and spoke with, you know, two uh, investors in that marketplace, spoke at different events uh, to help folks sort of understand better sort of how the housing market looks. How do you think about that? How would you understand historical data? All of that, I think that's where communication and, and getting that data and information out there is fundamentally important. Mm-hmm. So you have more transparency. Folks can uh, analyze that data. They can look at it. They can build their own model. Models, uh, that's going to create, you know, a better confidence in the marketplace and sort of the the willingness to take on that investment. Hmm, quite interesting. So this current, dare I call it a housing boom? I, I don't know if I could call it that, but this most recent leg up in housing, despite higher interest rates, um, how is this different than prior economic cycles? What what makes this housing cycle somewhat unique? I think the major difference is just the depths to which housing construction fell off. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we built so few units for so long uh, helped to correct for some overbuilding in certain markets uh, last decade, and then even more so. And so that, I think, creates a little bit different in terms of the sensitivity because you have not only that lack of building, but you also have this tremendous demographic tailwind from the millennial generation who are really hitting those peak home buying years mm-hmm. right around now, right. Know, or actually a couple of years later. So that's why I'm still optimistic about the next couple of years, because you know the median age of a first-time home buyer is about 31. I think the median age of millennials is 28, 29. So you still got a couple of years of really till that peak demand really starts hitting the housing market. And so that, I think, has helped the overall market uh, remain you know, robust despite higher interest rates and, and very rapid home price growth in a lot of markets. Hmm. Quite fascinating. I, I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Tell us the most important thing that we don't know about you. Yeah, I, I think now people who know me personally will know this, but in general, sort of in public, uh, they may not re- realize this, is that uh, my uh, I'm probably the second best economist in my household. <laughs> <laughs> that when I, right? I come home, my wife, she's also an economist. Uh, she works actually around housing-related issues, she had, you know, credit risk and things like that. She's a, a real expert on that. And so when I when I come home, you know, I have great discussions at work, but I can have other discussions, you know, at home talking about statistics, econometrics, <laughs> things like that. Uh, it's real, uh, you know, exciting talk there at home this is dinner table conversation dinner table conversation but uh and that i think is really like i kind of i think of it as a superpower because it's really you know gives me sort of a a real rich i think perspective on things because she's also uh very you know clear to tell me sort of when things are kind of nonsense or i'm not making a lot of sense so she has that that perspective which is great i was going to ask how often are you two fundamentally disagreeing about basic tenants in in the housing market uh not not too much because she's often right so i'm uh, i listen to her very carefully. Uh, you've been married for a long time, I could tell. So tell us about your early mentors who helped guide your career. Yeah, th- there are two that, uh, that I would uh, that come to mind that I think are particularly important. Uh, if I look at my sort of graduate training at, at, at Ohio State, uh, Bill Dupour was my advisor, my thesis advisor, sort of really helped train me in sort of understanding and thinking like an economist to bring sort of a macroeconomic uh, perspective and understand sort of the models and approaches that uh, economists use. Uh, that was very important. 
sort of forming sort of my thinking as an economist. But then very important was when I started at Freddie Mac, because we talked a little bit about sort of transition to industry. Mm-hmm. Now, here I was this guy. I had uh, come to the market. I, I was didn't have a lot of industry experience. I had some kind of theoretical stuff. So my first hiring, the guy, guy who hired me at Freddie Mac, a guy named Dave Rada, who's still there uh, uh, in a different role, but uh, was really helpful in getting me sort of uh, to transition to industry, to help understand, sort of think through sort of how the industry is working, how the business people are thinking as an economist. He's an economist, too. Uh, and so I still see him at lunch sometimes, and I always have a great conversation whenever I see him. Interesting. Uh, what about investors? Who influenced the way you look at housing, real estate, that entire market? Yeah, so there are a lot of folks at Freddie who sort of have a lot of expertise about capital markets and, and that execution. You know, as the economist, I, I sometimes have some exposure to that, but I, I really got a lot of information from that from our former chief economist, mm-hmm. uh, Sean Bichetti, who who's moved back to the capital market side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he sort of had a lot of perspective and information on sort of how sort of the capital markets guys are thinking. You know, he'd worked on the street. So how does, you know, street investors think about stuff, which... Um, as you know, from a pure economics background, I didn't have that same perspective. I had a lot of great stories uh, about how things went, and so that really, I think, provided a lot of uh, valuable insights into how sort of folks are thinking, and even today, how they're thinking. Because I can ask him sort of what he's seeing. Hmm. So let's talk about everybody's favorite question. Tell us about uh, some of your favorite books. Uh, what do you read? Be they economics or housing or or not fiction, nonfiction. What are you enjoying? Well, I don't know how you uh, separate the economics from the fiction. Uh, sometimes, because <laughs> that can back. Hold on, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, that certainly can be a challenge. You know, I mean, this is the stories. Um, but actually, I think there's one book I think is really important uh, that I really appreciate. and I come back to constantly is a, is a book called "The Visual Display of Quantitative uh, Information" from Edward Tufte. He was a sure. Yale professor on data visualization. You mentioned my charts. Sort of my sort of beginning to come to to, to put those together was attending one of his uh, he does seminars and reading his books and really was an eye opener for thinking about how can we you know as a data analyst a scientist to think think and communicate that information to an audience with clarity and precision but still have a lot of complexity and insight. Mm-hmm. His his work is always uh, fantastic. That book is still a regular seller on Amazon, and it's something like fifty or sixty dollars. It is not an inexpensive book. the The other one of his that I have at home is "Information Is Beautiful," yeah, which is really a lovely uh, a lovely exposition. Any other books you want to mention? Anything else uh, you're reading just for fun? Well, not for fun, but it has been helpful. There's a book by Steven Pinker called uh, Sense of Style, mm-hmm. which because a lot of what I do is communicate. And one of the sort of areas that I'm really focused on and thinking about a lot is how can I be a better you know, presenter? How can I be a better communicator? How can I be a better writer? And, and in that book, um, he has, there's a lot of great stuff there, but one part in particular that I think applies to economists, I share it with my team when we talk about how can we you know, communicate to our business partners, the general audience, is this idea of the curse of knowledge, mm-hmm. of where when uh, you as an expert uh, know something, you have difficulty imagining what it's like not to know that. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of like, why do academics write terrible? Is, uh, the curse of knowledge. Is because they know a lot and they can't have a hard time empathizing with folks who don't. And so keeping that in mind and having that empathy, I think, is key to becoming a better communicator. And so I really enjoy that exposition and, and the other stuff in that book is, is great, too. There is a famous VC, and I won't name drop, but he refers to something very parallel, which is when they have startup entrepreneurs requesting um, venture investments, he goes, one of the, he had mentioned one of the things he noticed was the tendency for people who really understood their space and they saw the whole 10-year vision to be frustrated that the VCs thought, well, how could you not see this? It's so obvious. And now I'm contextualizing that as the, the curse of uh, the curse of knowledge. That's quite fascinating. And some of us are more cursed than others. <laughs> Very funny. Um, what is it about the housing market today that has you excited? Well, uh, so the housing market overall, I mean, I think there's the potential. We talked a lot about demand. If I think about it from more from an economist shop or industry shop, I think there's a huge amount of data and information that mm-hmm. we are just at the beginning of. You think about big data, the type of information that is becoming available or is available that has not yet been fully tapped in mind. 
I think that is a huge area of growth. It's an area of focus at the firm, an area of focus for myself from a machine learning, data analysis, uh, programming, how to deal with that information, how to consume it, how to think about it. The economics profession is starting to come to grips with how do you model that, mm-hmm. which I think we're a little slow, I think, in, in some of those areas, but there's a lot of exciting work in that dimension. And I think it is only going to grow uh, in ways we cannot even imagine today. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Yeah. So when I came t- from left Texas and came to the Washington, D.C. area, I was unemployed for about 15 months between sort of my professor job and getting hired on at Freddie. You know, there was a lot of times where I was sort of looking for a job. Now, it didn't help that I was that was in 2008 and nine when the economy was in a very tough spot and uh, finance was sort of particularly an industry that was in a lot of distress. But, you know, I had a hard time. I was coming from an academic background. There weren't academic jobs. Wasn't I was trying to transition into industry and really just sort of not matching up, not able to communicate clearly to the to the potential you know, jobs, I think I was, would have been able to do a lot of jobs, but the opportunities were, were tough. It was very competitive. And so continuously sort of coming up short, you know, and then doing that for a long time until finally, as I mentioned, Dave at Freddie gave me a chance um, with some resistance, I think, internally. They were skeptical uh, in the group. Uh, I think I won them over eventually, but, you know, sort of how, how I would turn out. And so uh, I think that sort of experience gave me a little bit of edge to think about, okay, maybe I could be, you know, unemployed again. So how would I keep myself competitive? How do I keep mm-hmm. myself uh, sort of avoiding that, you know, that idleness for a longer time? Hmm. Interesting. So what perspective changes in the mortgage market are, are you looking forward to? What, what do you think is the next set of changes that could have a big positive impact? Well, as I mentioned, I think this da- the data, integrating this data and information, I mean, there are tons of information already collected mm-hmm. that could be used either to help streamline the process of origination to lower costs. I mentioned origination costs have risen a lot. Could mm-hmm. we unlock that and find ways to, to use information technology to streamline the processes? I think we're getting some traction on that, but I think that and then tapping that information to effectively understand credit risk, to understand where the market may be headed, I think is enormously important. So what do you do uh, outside of the office for fun, to relax, to just kick back? Yeah, so uh, I like to, you know, do programming on the side, not economics. You know, some of the stuff on the, the Twitter is actually just me sort of messing around, playing, exploring ideas. Uh, I have two small children who have plenty of ideas for what I could be doing, but they know they're great fun. I mean, I have a, have a blast uh, hanging out with them uh, and then, you know, trying to find some time with the family. I think that's that's I, really precious, especially as the, the kids are so young now and it doesn't last so long. It flies by. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about uh, career advice. If a millennial or recent college grad came to you and said, I'm interested in the housing slash mortgage market, what sort of advice would you give them? Um, so if they were an economist or even a financial analyst, which is a lot of the roles, we actually um, work with some uh, new hires uh, in the company in different uh, aspects. And so I do talk to some of, some folks uh, or we have a rotational program where uh, new college hires will come in and they'll rotate through different uh, groups for about six months at a time. It's a great program where they can learn sort of how, what happens at Freddie Mac, what are different roles, accounting, finance, and sometimes they'll hang out with economists uh, and work. Uh, when I talk to those folks and, and folks that are interested in, in going forward in the career, from my perspective, one of the best skills to have and to be able to sort of leverage is sort of quantitative sort of programming, statistical analysis, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of that sort of area. So anything you can do to pick up some programming, I think, is incredibly important, and particularly if you want to go in an analysis role, uh, on understanding statistics, if you're thinking about going into an economics, more applied role more you know, applied statistics, econometrics is hugely important. That, that is probably good advice for any field, regardless of whether or not it's, it's finance-related. A little bit of programming, a little bit of statistical analysis goes a long way. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of mortgages and securitization and real estate today that you wish you knew 15 years ago when you were really just getting started? I think it's an enormously complex field, and I think the ability to distill 
uh, complex things, not make them extra complicated, but actually make them simpler is enormously important. And so when I started out, I was really you know focused on the complexity because that's from an academic background where you go. But really, people don't have time for that you know, mm -hmm. in the industry. They want to have answers. They got a lot of pressures. And so finding out, you know, really having that uh, empathy, the sort of avoiding the curse of knowledge as you speak, but to try to really get to the heart of the problem quickly uh, and the paramount importance of that. Like number one, almost number one, and when you're approaching a problem or you're going to meet with someone, is try to really get to the point and really focus on the answer and deliver on that, and to have some sense of what they know and what you know and they don't know, uh, to sort of align that, to have a real appreciation for that, and how that can take, you know, if you have a okay answer but you combine it with great, you know, clear communication, is sometimes a lot better, often a lot better than having a fantastic answer that nobody can understand. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Um, never let the, uh, good, the, the perfect be the enemy of the good, so to speak. Quite, quite interesting stuff. We have been speaking with Len Kiefer. He is the deputy chief economist at Freddie Mac. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you can find any of the other 220 plus such conversations we have had over the previous four plus years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the team that helps put together this podcast each week. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is my producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.